welcome back to the Film Brain Podcast. And of course, this is the Oscar special. We're recording this the night after the Oscars, and oh boy, is there plenty to talk about. And I've got some guests with me here today. First up, the Academy Award winner for Best Video about Book of Henry, Dan Olson. <laughs> Hello. Also, we have the Academy Award winner for Best Minion, The Omega. Hey, everybody. And finally, a star of a genuine award winner, Shame It Was a Razzie, Petros Yanu. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Matt. I pr- appreciate it. Glad, 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 glad <laughs> did Holmes and Watson win? I think it did win Worst Picture at the Razzies. <laughs> <laughs> I had that episode on this weekend as I was doing a lot of errands around the town and I walk everywhere. It's like, oh, I listened to this already, but I'll throw it on. And I actually want to see it now just to, to see what y'all were talking about. I don't think we said it in the actual podcast. I've actually not seen it. <laughs> <laughs> you lived it. I just lived it. Really, what you got to do is watch both versions for the full experience. Yeah, the big ones for the Razzies were Holmes and Watson and Happy Time Murders, and uh, I'm not going to contest that. You know, some years the Razzies are clearly just bagging on stuff because it's popular, while being, you know, kind of mediocre. They've given, you know, so many Razzies to Fifty Shades when it's like, nah, these movies are just kind of like actually mediocre. It's the fact that they're popular that gets them all the extra hate, but like, no, Holmes and Watson and Happy Time Murders were like legitimately just awful films. I think if Happy Time Runners had been given over to the people that did Avenue Q, it would have been amazing. I think if it had stayed the length of a funny or die fake trailer, it would have been great. <laughs> it's amazing that the Razzies this year are actually less contentious than the Oscars. <laughs> the Oscars themselves. Yeah. And uh, yeah, let's talk about that big elephant in the room. Let's talk about Green Book. Because <laughs> that's what everyone else is talking about since the moment it was announced out of the envelope. Yeah. What's a Green Book? I don't know her. (laughs) I mean, I think just kind of like right off the top, Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody were really the only two contentious ones in there in the sense that I think like if any of the others had won. So if Black Panther, Black Klansman, Favorite or Star is Born had won, there would have been basically no complaints beyond like, well, mm, yeah, okay. And then Roma would be a little bit more contentious just because it's, you know, it's extremely sort of art house movie and it's foreign language and all of that. Mm-hmm. And then Vice would be the one that people would be like, wait, really? Hmm. They would think of it as a really weird win, but I mean, it had no hope. So like, that's a huge hypothetical. Which is a shame because I, I mean, as, as a performance, I think Christian Bale did absolutely phenomenal in that. Yeah. So this really kind of was a year where it's similar to the year that Crash won in a lot of ways in the sense that like you have a bunch of really strong worthy films you know the year that crash won there was really only one wrong choice but they only had five nominees so double the nominees double the number of wrong choices to two like don't give it to green book don't give it to bohemian rhapsody well my feeling on the on the best picture nominees was that i would agree that bohemian and green book would be the movies that i would count out but i would also discount vice i also think that that movie didn't really earn that spot Mm. I think the fact that Vice got so many nominations this year is a little weird. Is one of the more bewildering things about this year's Oscars, even if it went home with nothing. It got it for political reasons because of the political climate in the world right now. 
Yeah, potentially. As you said, Dan, it is a year where there was no real clear favourite, despite the favourite being in the nominations. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Something to kind of talk about from that angle is that it's like Bohemian Rhapsody is, air quote, the big winner this year with four. Mm. It wasn't even a sweep. No, there was quite a spread. There was a lot of movies that got three. Yeah. Yeah. That's got to be one of the lowest number of winners for a top number of winning awards in a long time, right? So that, uh, like, Green Book took... Three. Three. It did take three. It took Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Original Screenplay. Okay. That's also contentious and probably should have been a little bit of an omen for later in the night. Yeah, the the screenplay. um, Supporting actor there, Marshal Ali, absolutely, like that one, cool. No disagreements with that. I mean, I've seen Green Book. uh, This is Mahershala Ali's second Oscar win and second nomination. And uh, he does a really good job in that movie. I think a large reason why Green Book works as well as it does largely comes down to the performances of Ali and Viggo Mortensen, they do have a chemistry together that I think carries a lot of that movie on a sort of surface level viewing over some of its more deeper flaws and even some of the rougher edges that are clearly apparent when you're watching it anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's similar to Bohemian Rhapsody and like Rami Malek's nomination and and win for performance is like, okay, yes, I don't disagree with that, but it's basically every other nomination that movie got that's like, hmm. I basically don't begrudge Rami Malek anything. I think he's phenomenal. I think the link between the three movies that I mentioned as not really being worthy of the best picture category is that they all actually have strong performances at the centre of them, which, when the performances are working in a movie, I think a lot of people can overlook other aspects of it. So you think of something like Vice, which has Christian Bale's performance at the centre of it, and Christian Bale's doing a fantastic job in that movie, even if I think the movie itself is muddled, clumsy, tonally inconsistent, and vaguely mean-spirited. Yeah. You've got something like Bohemian Rhapsody that also had a fantastic performance by Rami Malek, and of course, as we said, Green Book. And I think the thing about Green Book winning is that I kind of had a hunch that it was going to do so. It just seemed like the kind of year that that would happen, because the Oscars always have this little habit of finding a way of getting a mediocrity to shoot its way into victory. I mean, it goes up there with the notorious winners of Crash and Driving Miss Daisy. Spike Lee has been referring to it as Driving Miss Daisy with the dynamic essentially reversed and I've pretty much been saying that (laughs) since I saw it in early December. Green Book isn't a terrible movie but it is a deeply flawed one especially considering the dynamic and storytelling that it's trying to do where it's another one of those movies where a racist has to get along with a black man it's their friendship and he discovers actually being racist is kind of bad. Yeah. And he reforms over the movie and it's not a particularly well-written example of that genre in the first place, even getting into the sort of off-stage controversies of Green Book, like the fact that it's about Don Shirley, but his family weren't actually consulted during the writing process, and they only found out about it, I think, while they were shooting, or just about to shoot the movie. They've had a lot of questions about his depiction in the film. There's the fact that it's written by Nick Vallonga, who is the son of Tony 
Lip, the character that Viggo Mortensen portrays in that film, and he's had some pro-Trump tweets in an account that he has subsequently deleted when they came to light. Peter Farrelly, one half of the Farrelly brothers, has had old claims of sexual harassment that he used to go around as a prank, exposing his manhood to people. There's a lot of baggage with Green Book, and it, certainly going into the Oscars, it was definitely a controversial pick, even right from the beginning, so it was kind of surprising that it did go over the top, but at the same time, because the movie is so, in my opinion, kind of middle of the road, it doesn't entirely surprise me that it ended up being on top. Yeah, not surprised, just disappointed. That's the general sensation. I mean, I, w I didn't really see a lot of the Oscars coverage because a lot of it isn't free-to-air television in the UK. It's paywalled. So the first time I learned about the Best Picture winner, I'd set my alarm for six o'clock, watch morning TV, and uh, in true British fashion, they didn't mention the Best Picture winner until later on in the program because they were too busy talking about Olivia Coleman. Eventually, when they did say, oh, and Green Book won Best Picture, I actually went, oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> Just to clarify, Matt, you've heard of Google, right? I know, but I was lazy. <laughs> yeah, I saw this morning, I checked Twitter on my phone, but you know, it kind of does make a lot of sense because you know what genre Green Book is. It's Oscar bait. Oh yeah. Yeah. We used to say that when we were little, oh, this movie, oh, just pure Oscar bait because it does strike me that it hits all of those pathos points. Mm, yeah. I took a playwriting class when I was in high school and the senior playwright and actor who the school paid to come in basically stood up and said, you want good reviews, you want people to pay attention, write about AIDS, write about another race or write about another religion or write about the Holocaust. And I thought to myself at the time, like, it's really harsh, but it does make a certain point. I'm actually surprised my German friend, her film school, that she's not gone when I asked her. She wrote a film about the Holocaust and cancer and racism as well. So it was like, you know, that's, uh, that would have definitely won an Oscar by now. What's the hat trick? It hits a lot of the marks in that it is a actor-driven film that is a historical drama that takes a complex social issue like racism and boils it down to be being about individual flaws. Mm. This is sort of the core criticism, which I guess we haven't really covered. Like the systemic flaw that Green Book is tapping into is that it is yet another film that takes a complex, deeply rooted structural societal issue like U.S. racism, which, spoiler alert, was codified into law as legal, organized, industrialized slavery and boils it down to just being a problem about people not getting along. Yes. And makes it an individual flaw. And you mentioned that as well because the title of the film comes from a travel guide made for black tourists telling them safe areas, what towns to avoid, listing sundown towns. And the movie sort of mentions that but never really goes into any kind of detail about those things. You get individual elements of it but the Green Book is not really the focus of the movie despite being the title and having an enormous significance to black people. Instead focuses much more on the relationship, the true friendship as it markets itself, between Tony and Shirley. The problem with the way the film addresses the subject matter yeah. is that Tony I don't think has a moment where he actually properly changes. He just sort of does over the course of the movie. There's no active course of transition for him. He starts out the movie as someone who, when black plumbers appear in his home, he bins the glasses that they drink out 
out of. And then suddenly, by the end of the movie, Don Shirley's allowed at the Christmas table. Racism solved! He makes a friend. It makes me think of, you know, like, this is how we solve racism by Joey, age five. Like, a very simplistic, like, a child would think, oh, well, if a black person and a white person and they just get together and be friends and everything's grand. But... No. Yeah. That is basically it. The thing is, in a year where movies have come out like Black Klansman or The Hate You Give or Black Panther, it really if Beale Street feels could talk. weak. Oh, yeah. Oh, and If Beale Street Could Talk, of course. It was a year for very strong African-American helmed and created films about African-American experiences. And you're seeing a bit of a slap in the face that it's like, okay, like Moonlight last year. Oh, Moonlight the year before last Actually. Was was that two years ago? Oh wow, that was two years ago because last year was Shape, Shape of, of Water. Oh man, twenty six. Right, so two years ago, Moonlight. You know, intensely powerful film about Black queer experiences. Green Book belongs in nineteen ninety two. It does. It is some dances with wolves level like <laughs> historically woke. That was woke for the eighties. It's eighties woke. When I came out of the movie, I thought, wow, you could literally make this movie twenty five years ago, and it would be exactly exactly the same film. Yep, that's pretty much it. You're actually saying about like how movies like Green Book are definitely actor-driven pieces, and guys, uh, we need to learn, is that actors, we're tiny-minded people. We, we don't have very large brains. I say we because I'm one of them. We, 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 we like it when we do well, and, and that's what makes a good movie, right? Ah. Uh, yeah. The thing is with Green Book is that it's exactly the kind of movie that has been skewered for just as long as things like Dry Miss Daisy and so on and so forth. I mean, even just this past week, Seth Meyers had a really brilliant takedown of exactly these kind of movies mm -hmm. where he literally went through those tropes in that sketch and it's a really sharp, pointed sketch and it pretty much functions as a beat-for-beat -beat takedown of Green Book, pretty much. But it could also apply to the numerous other movies that directly reference is in there for movies like Hidden Figures, Dangerous Minds, and so on and so forth. Was that the sketch where uh, it's like, start off with some uh, racial tension? Do you need a hand? Like this lady holding all these groceries and she's just like, haven't you done enough, whitey? Oh no, it's not. Was that the one or is that no, a... No, no, that's a different one. Yeah, see, that's how hack <laughs> this is, is that there are multiple amazingly good parodies of exactly this formula. Oh yeah, the Seth Myers one I think is actually straight up called white saviour. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's actually really funny, the sketch, honestly. If you've got a second, I recommend going to check it out. It really made me laugh when I saw it. And I, I can't remember why. I just caught it casually when I was like, scrolling through Facebook or something. It's basically like this uh, black woman basically followed around by a white guy who keeps like complimenting her and saying, see, you can do it. As though it's, like, it's like, yeah, I know. I'm your boss. <laughs> I've adjusted the microphone for it. It's all about black African-American characters standing up for themselves, but it's the story actually about the white man going, you go for it! <laughs> it's so patronizing, and I feel like that's becoming the narrative everywhere. People can do things without someone else being involved. That's of the majority. I mean, I know I'm white, so I really shouldn't have any point of view about racism. And sometimes, like, I'll see stuff going on on Twitter, and I want to say something. I'm like, I just, I've got nothing to add here. It's so frustrating, because how are we going to tell now when actually good narratives come along? When, like, something really groundbreaking really does happen, and it changes the world or the country or even just one family, everyone's going to be like, 
seen it. I saw Green Book a few years ago. <laughs> well, I know Spike Lee was very angry about Green Book winning. He made his distaste very much known, and to a lesser extent, Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, Spike made his best movie since uh, Do the Right Thing, and Do the Right Thing didn't even get nominated while Driving Miss Daisy won, yeah. and then he finally gets a whole slate of nominations for Black Klansmen, and Driving Miss Daisy 2 wins. So apparently what happened was that he stood up and tried to walk out of the auditorium and then security wouldn't let him so apparently he begrudgingly walked back but pointedly stood up with his back turned to the stage. Uh, to a lesser extent Samuel L. Jackson was presenting alongside Brie Larson both of the screenwriting nominees and of course the first one was Best Original Screenplay which Green Book also won undeservedly in a category that had the favourite in it. Samuel L. Jackson when he was reading that his face was rather a picture just looking at it going green book <laughs> really when he read out the best adapted screenplay which black clansman won he was ecstatic over the moon cheering and of course there's that great shot of spike lee jumping onto samuel hugging him yeah. as he does so as he goes onto the stage yeah that kind of sets it all really and just that weird juxtaposition back to back you give an award to green book and then you give another award to a far more radical and far more pointed film about the same issue it kind of highlights the exact problem there i get the impression that spike lee might have been aggravated towards the end of the night of having to keep being asked about green book you know the movie that he didn't make yeah because <laughs> i was watching the morning tv coverage everyone's camped outside the vanity fair after party both itv and bbc asked spike about his uh, thoughts on it and on bbc there was a much more pointed uh, you're british right i'll put it this way it wasn't my cup of tea <laughs> he's made no secret of it <laughs> fair so, enough he's spike lee I suppose the answer to Green Book winning is that the Academy's voting process is extremely weird, especially from an outside perspective. And correct me if I'm wrong, the way that the Academy voting works is essentially a, a ranked order. Yes. They assign them a point scoring system, so the lowest ones drop out, and then those points are reassigned to other movies. Yeah, it's an automatic roll-off. That's how something like Green Book essentially ascends to the top. Yeah. It's such a kind of middle of the road inoffensive movie in some respects. <laughs> so the downside of automatic roll-off, now I'm not going to say that automatic roll-off or like these kinds of point systems are like strictly bad. They're not. They have their uses but one of the quirks of them is that you're more likely to end up with a middle of the road thing that a lot of people kind of liked over something that was much more competitive. So if you've got three films like Black Klansman, Black Panther, and Roma all competing very aggressively for people's heart at the top of the list. Green Book is basically everybody's third pick. Then Green Book is going to win. Yes. That was sort of my theory on how it could have won and also how potentially we could have ended up with Bohemian Rhapsody as being the winner as well, which would have probably been also real bad for a number of reasons, namely in the fact that, of course, Brian Singer, air quotes, directed it. Oh, man. Yeah. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if, like, you audited the ballots and it wound up being that number one picks across the board were, like, Black Panther, Black Klansman, Roma, Star is Born, and then just a huge number of twos and threes were Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody in that order. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody is a whole other can of worms because Bohemian Rhapsody is also the other kind of movie that is exceptionally mediocre, but 
that did actually resonate with audiences. The people that have made Bohemian Rhapsody, even Queen themselves, have kind of forwarded this weird argument of, well, the critics hated it, but audiences loved it, which, uh, if you look at the reviews, that wasn't strictly true. There was actually quite a bit of praise for Bohemian Rhapsody, even if it was mostly for Rami Malek's performance in the movie, which, you know, he deserves that Oscar. I thought he did a brilliant job in that film, and I think it was pretty clear that he was going to win it. I think uh, he has swept pretty much all the major awards leading up to the Oscars Mm -hmm. anyway, so it was all but confirmed that he was going to win it here as well. But the thing is with Bohemian Rhapsody is that it's not a very well-made movie, but I suppose the fact that it's competent in any kind of way, and even that might be arguable in some areas, is perhaps an accomplishment just given the tumultuous background of the movie where, of course, Brian Singer was fired during production. Dexter Fletcher was brought in, who's directing the Elton John biopic Rocket Man, so he did pickups on it. As I said in my review at the time, Bohemian Rhapsody feels less like a Singer movie yeah. and more like a movie that's been directed by Queen. Yes. And to that end, let's talk about <laughs> the editing in Bohemian oh. Rhapsody, which somehow won an oh Oscar. Oh my god. How did they not give it to Justice League last year, if this is the quota? My mixed play. John Ottoman, uh, Brian Singer's regular editor, won the award, and uh, best editing for Bohemian Rhapsody makes me want to bang my head on a table. It is the <laughs> only only wrong answer in that category. So film editing nominees. Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, Green Book, The Favorite, Vice. So Green Book, very conventional, straightforward, dramatic editing, The Favorite, weird black comedy editing, decent but not going to really call attention to itself. Black Klansman, similar. Vice, very weird, very aesthetic editing, contentious, but, you know, strong choices. A lot of strong flavors in that one. And then Bohemian Rhapsody, edited by Dartboard. (laughs) Just baffling construction. The only actually, like, wrong answer there. Can I just ramble about this for a bit? Do it. Do it. Live the dream. I would love for you to do this. Okay, so how this happened? How did this happen? Looking at this, like, slate of editing nominees, there is no strong standout contender. There's nothing in there like Gravity, Fury Road, or Dunkirk that really aggressively use... Well, I guess Vice is sort of like this, except Vice is weird. Films that really use the craft of editing to its absolute fullest in the way that, like, you watch the movie and you feel like it has taught you something about the craft of filmmaking just by being in its presence. We didn't have a strong standout like that this year. And so what ends up happening is Academy voters, if they don't have something that really jumps to mind, they tend to just block vote. The order that it would go is they would look at and be like, okay, here's my editing choices. I know I want Bohemian Rhapsody for sound because I really like Queen songs. And yeah, let's just Bohemian Rhapsody for all three. So that's how that ends up happening. That wouldn't surprise me given how notoriously lazy Oscar voters can be, especially when they've done interviews and they've said, oh, I've not actually seen all the candidates or I'm not voting in the animated category because I don't watch animated films. That does make sense on that level. But yesterday I found myself very annoyed because 
all of a sudden I realised, wait, searching isn't in the editing category, which is a movie entirely about editing in various different forms. Yeah. And is a movie that is entirely dictated by its structure and is really unique and really would have been a standout. I mean, there's a lot of kind of weird lapses and oversights in some of the smaller categories. Mission Impossible Fallout in none of the technicals. What's yeah. going on there? And like Bohemian Rhapsody, I'm just going to keep going with this. It's not just film editing. It's the sound editing and the sound mixing. It deserved none of those three. It is actually bad at all of them <laughs> that Bohemian Rhapsody won sound editing over First Man oh, yeah. or A Quiet Place. Yeah, over A Quiet Place. Hold me back. <laughs> it 100% comes down to like that movie had songs I really like in it. Yeah, that's why it was a success. Yes. Queen was good. Yeah. People like Queen and people want to go think about Queen. But you know what I'm really pissed off about? We were robbed of Sasha Baron Cohen playing Freddie Mercury and I think he would have done an amazing job. Not that Ramin Malik didn't, but that's what we could have had. I'm really looking forward to sort of the next few months when we're going to start getting a lot more details about how much Brian May's thumb was on this production. I mean, we already know the answer to that is a lot, but I think we're going to start getting like granular details. He was there the day that I was on set, I'll put it that way. So here's one of the things that really stands out to me is that in Rami Malek's acceptance speech, okay, so he just won Best Actor for a biopic, and in the acceptance speech, he did not actually say Freddie Mercury's name and didn't mention AIDS once. Mm. That is another part of the cloud hanging over Bohemian Rhapsody. Like, it is a film that was made by the surviving members of Queen to make themselves look rad. Yes. And make themselves look just as cool and reasonable as Freddie Mercury. And it's a very strange film. And I think in a couple months, you're going to see like there's already backlash to it. But I think it's just going to get worse, especially once it's out on home video and people like myself have a chance to actually go through it in like granular detail. There's this one famous clip that's floating around of the brunch. Oh, yeah. Loads and loads of people are posting this. Yeah. The brunch scene that is cut together with a wood chipper. The sound <laughs> editing in it is terrible. The sound mixing in it is terrible. The scene editing is terrible. And like the only answer that I can find of like, how did this end up this way is that there was like pressure from surviving members of Queen, Brian May in particular, they get co-equal weight, like that this is not a movie about Freddie. This is a movie about Queen, but it's also about their individual egos, which is why Brian May gets so many meaningless, pointless, useless close-ups. Very short close-ups. <laughs> Very short reactions shots, but he gets the frame to himself. I'm not going to be shocked if we find out just like some weird thing, like part of Rami Malek's contract is to like not talk about AIDS. And it's just going to be like, wait, what? That's like talking about the Titanic without the... Ugh. I think there's an even bigger scandal behind Bohemian Rhapsody that is yet to break. Petros, you mentioned that you were on the set for that movie? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, again, another extra role for that. My friend Kelsey also did background work on it as well. Funnily enough, we were there on separate days, and yet she actually saw Brian May as well on those days. I, uh, I saw Brian May because I just figured it was the scene that I was in. I was part of a crowd, and it was the Live Aid concert. I thought, you know, okay, 
they're getting Brian May on there to like see the whole crowd and everything and people have a good it's not the most glamorous thing it was supposed to be it's the hottest day of the year this is what you've got to do it's actually fucking raining in the background he was just like walking around up on the stage and I did notice they were focusing quite a bit on Brian May's character while they were doing these shots it didn't occur to me until just now when you mentioned it that like he probably got an enormous amount of close-ups when I was all set and Brian hadn't been fired yet yeah I think the live aid stuff was the very first stuff they shot either way he wasn't there on set because that was all second unit stuff the thing that we were most impressed by was Rami Malek and the fact that he so effortlessly became Freddie Mercury with some of the things that you're saying it makes sense there was obviously some problems yeah, yeah. it's hard to tell because it's not like with the Holmes and Watson where A it's pretty obvious when you're there and B I was actually in the meat of it with Holmes and Watson whereas with B and Rhapsody I was in the crowd Rami Malek also did something else at the Oscars <laughs> you fell off the stage <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing, but... I don't think this is televised, but uh, I did see uh, someone did post a clip of this, and yeah, you probably shouldn't laugh, but it is kind of funny just to see him go... Apparently, uh, the paramedics did actually check on him, but uh, he's okay. He's all right. I I don't know how you do that on a stage like the Oscars, but... um... Because we're just so overwhelmed and confused, and you've had a few... Nash was saying on Twitter that the gift bags they had... At first, you know, we thought it was just like, you know, CBD products, but apparently there was like full-on like THC edibles in there. (laughs) Wasn't there like weed lube in there? Yeah, that's kind of not the classiest thing ever. You don't give weed lube to a guest who come over to your house? Uh, I thought that was normal. No. No, only family. Only family gets the weed loop. There's always a fantastic article around Oscar time talking about the weird shit that they get in their goodie bags. <laughs> they always get really bizarre stuff if they get nominated. My fiance, I can't remember what she told me she actually got in her goodie bag. She went to the Oscars uh, the year before she met me. You know, apparently since she met me, clearly she's going to the Razzies more often. <laughs> I, I remember her telling me at the time, and I can't quite remember what it was because it's, it's been like seven years since she, she, she told me. She got some like weird stuff in the gift bag. <laughs> it was like, I'm not entirely sure if I won to go back what do people think of the other Oscar-nominated films, especially those in the Best Picture category? Because I saw seven out of the eight films, so the only one that I didn't see out of the nominees was Roma. My personal favourite was actually The Favourites. I was hoping that that movie was going to win, even though I think that was maybe a little bit of a long shot, in my opinion. I mean, there were some courses that thought Black Panther was going to win, and I don't think that that was ever really a possibility in my mind. It just didn't seem like a thing that the Oscars would do, even in a year where before they had voted the monster shagging movie as the as best picture. <laughs> the monster shagging movie deserved to win an Oscar, though. That was a really good film and really well made. It is a really good film, but if you told me that that was the Oscars pick for best picture, oh, God, no. that wouldn't be the orthodox pick, yeah. even if it does have some traditionally Oscars-friendly elements to it, particularly its love of older cinema. Yeah, 100% agree on that one. I, my, my personal favourite of the best picture bunch was Black Landsman. I thought that, that was an excellent film that really tapped into what's going on today by looking at the past it was the polar opposite to the actual winner green book mm-hmm. in that sense in the, yeah. and it dealt with it on a very complex level as well because it dealt with the way racism and hate a that they still exist today people will try and stamp it out to avoid embarrassment things like that it made it quite funny as well in the process of doing it yeah it's a huge thing when you try and deal with subject matter like that i think it's a really fascinating film especially with everything that happened in charlottesville a year to the day that the movie was released which they make a point of in the movie it's i 
I think it was for me. It was an excellent movie. I, I saw a couple of the others. Vice, A Star Is Born. I liked A Star Is Born actually. I, I quite liked that. That was sort of my runner-up. I actually thought that might have had an outside chance, but it's clear looking back retrospectively that actually it probably wasn't going to get much of one. I was really surprised when I saw A Star Is Born because I saw it just before it came out, and I kicked myself for not actually getting around to reviewing it properly. But I really liked the way that it was so stripped back it had that kind of verite feel to it that made it feel unique to me at the very least and the songs were so powerful in that movie I mean Shallow of course won best original song which was pretty much a foregone conclusion I think Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting to evaluate how A Star Is Born didn't win this is something that I think is a little bit interesting. I think if Star is Born had been released in May instead of October, <laughs> it would have won. Here's the sort of like odd thing. So A Star is Born did gangbusters at the box office. $424 million for a drama. Fantastic performance. It did very well box office wise, but it didn't quite have enough time to really sink into the bones of the culture before it was getting crowded out by all of the other late-year dramas. Especially Bohemian Rhapsody, which was released yeah. very shortly after. So if it had come out earlier in the year, like if it had been more on like the release slate of Greatest Showman and had aimed for a little bit more of that and had had time to like really sink in and get its claws in and then was having its like digital and home releases towards the end of the year, mm. I think then it would have actually taken Best Picture. I was surprised at just how strong a film it was because I went back and watched other versions of the story and the Streisand one, for example, doesn't really hold up even though that's the one that Cooper's version arguably takes the most inspiration from. I was very pleased to see that uh, Sam Elliott got recognised. I think that his performance in that film is probably some of his best work that he's done in years. I was pulling for Star is Born a little bit because I have a soft spot for Bradley Cooper. Mm. It was when they were filming um, Silver Linings Playbook. Uh, they filmed part of it where they're walking on my grandmother's street and she was out puttering around and they said, we're going to film a movie. Do you want to be in the background? Do you want to be on your porch or puttering around while we film the movie? She was kind of unconvinced that they actually were filming a real movie. They said, oh, do you want to meet Bradley Cooper? And she had no idea who he was. She said, oh, sure. And, and then she ended up not being an incidental extra in the movie. She told us because, well, they were using profanity. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of like I was kind of pulling for him a little bit I liked Black Panther as a film I thought it was a very very good film mm. I'm very glad it was nominated because it just is hugely important for representation yes. I honestly don't think it was one of the best films of the year I, I think it's one of the better superhero films but it doesn't even top my favourite uh, sort of like Marvel movies I don't think it's on the same sort of level as like The Dark Knight or Superman the movie for example again I really like Black Panther just because um... but I'm very glad it was nominated yeah. yeah I thought that it had a very kind of distinct identity and especially in terms of its production design and costume design which the Academy recognised it won big in those categories yeah. and absolutely deserved it oh it's, it's beautiful does a glorious job creating the world of Wakanda in that movie one note that should be mentioned about Black Panther though is that uh, some people were surprised that it wasn't in the visual effects category but actually I would argue that the Academy got it right I'd argue that is his weakest part. The funny thing about that is, again, Black Panther won visual effects at the BAFTAs, but at the Oscars it wasn't even nominated. Instead, Avengers Infinity War was, and I would argue that the Oscars actually got that right, because for all its positives, it does have some ropey effects shots in it, especially in the climax of the movie. The rhinos. Yeah. Yeah, the, the climax of the movie has some really iffy effects shots. The Wakanda scenes in Infinity War were infinitely better and much more complex to design, which 
just kind of goes to show where the budget went from Marvel. What was funny about the nomination for Infinity War is that it clearly surprised Marvel themselves because they posted on Twitter when the nominations were being announced, they very briefly posted the image that they created for Black Panther that had all the nominees on it, and then they quickly took it down and replaced it with the Infinity War one where they clearly just slapped it together very quickly and didn't even have the nominees on it. <laughs> <laughs> Can, can we talk about High Point, one of the moments of justice that we did get last night? Uh, yes. Into the Spider-Verse. Absolutely. It deserved a Best Picture nomination, but animated feature film, I will take it. What a just great movie. I've seen it three times now. Such a fantastic film. I'm going to go back to the Black Panther thing here, but I'm very glad it was nominated. I think Into the Spider-Verse was a better film. I would actually agree that Into the Spider-Verse is actually, in my opinion, a better film than Black Panther. I think even... Into the Spider-Verse could have actually taken Best Picture, actually, when I think about it sometimes. It should have been nominated. Enough people loved it, and clearly everyone loved it, because it won all the shows mm -hmm. in the advance of the Oscars. So again, it was actually more of a foregone conclusion, except for the fact that, of course, notoriously, the Oscar voters don't tend to watch the animated nominations and just vote for the Disney movie. Yeah... But hey, this year the Disney movie split itself. The Disney vote got split between Ralph and Incredibles. So, Spider-Man ticket, I guess. <laughs> it's nice to see something on Disney triumph in that category. Yes. Especially when it's won several times in a row, undeservingly, in my opinion. It is nice to see it. Like, I don't care like if it was a vote split or if it was unanimous. That Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse won. That there is recognition for something so strongly of its format creatively driven mm. like yeah using its format to an absolute just pinnacle of its art form in every way like creativity is baked into the bones of that movie and it has just so much heart yeah it is not a flawless film i went to see a preview screening it was the sneak peeks that they ran like a week beforehand i was figuring this like okay it's an animated feature it's probably going to clock hour and a half maybe uh, 95 minutes so i then looked it up and it was like two hours and i'm like wow what are they gonna do for like two hours this looks like a very expensive movie to make two hours of and then i came out of it i'm like okay so they definitely cut 12 to 15 minutes yeah because like there's just a couple scenes where it's like they very suddenly hit a point where they then like move very very quickly to their conclusion and make some big leaps and it's like okay it is not a flawless film but at its core, it is so strong. So strong. It is one of those as close to flawless as you can get kind of films, I think. Yeah, you know, regularly left me choking up and it hit like that pitch perfect balance between incredibly touching scenes that then have just a little bit of humor to break the tension but not shatter it. Mm. So like Mary Jane's eulogy where then like I'm choking up just thinking about it. You know, Miles is in the crowd watching Mary Jane and he's surrounded by all these other people who have done the same thing as him like they've gone out and they've bought spider-man costumes and they're wearing it she says it is our responsibility to be spider-man and then miles says to himself i've got to be spider-man mm. and then the person right next to him is like i think she was talking generally as a metaphor not not about <laughs> you in specific it breaks the heaviness of the eulogy scene without just being a pratfall like woo 
Oh, man, yeah. we almost got serious there for a second. Mm. Like, it's a funny joke, but it's still respectful of the tension. And that balancing act mm. is super difficult. Yeah. And they nailed it over and over again throughout that movie. And just no one had anything bad to say about it. Yeah, it's such a wonderful movie. It really is. And I'm actually wearing my Spider-Man t-shirt today. Just coincidentally, as it turns out. But <laughs> <laughs> Petros, you said you had um, you you'd worked with Lord Miller before. Uh, actually, it wasn't with Lord Miller. I worked on Solo, and it was um, oh, post Lord Miller, yes, uh, yeah. post Lord Miller. I really liked Solo when I came out of it, and yet after watching Spider Verse, I feel really happy for them that they won over Disney in the end. I feel like that you know Lord Miller took too much flack for what came out of Solo, mm. especially seeing as a lot of what was in Solo, and I I know this for fact, actually was their ideas. It was just changed slightly. Like for example, some parts were made a lot bigger. I think it was actually a lot smaller movie when Lord and Miller were doing it, just based on some of the descriptions that I heard on set. What, what I basically, I body double for um, Alden Ehrenreich, which will be my claim to fame until the day I die that I was Han Solo for a few days. <laughs> I could actually win an Oscar tomorrow. Coolest thing I've ever done would still be I was Han Solo. It's pretty cool. I think it was a lot more comedic when they were doing it, definitely. If I, like, I remember certain pages of the script were a lot more comedic. The actual script that we had, the stage directions were definitely Lord and Miller's original version. And uh, reading them, I, I thought, this sounds like it was more directly comedy and I think actually in many ways that would have made Solo a more appreciated movie for being something a bit different Yeah, and yeah. thinking about Spider-Verse and the way that that film tackled it in the end I think it could have been more like that you can definitely still see the Lord Miller stuff in the final version of So but it's always going to be the kind of what if what if they actually were allowed to complete it in the way that they wanted to it's lucky that that hasn't dented them too much from what it appears they're shopping around new ideas at the minute and apparently virtually everyone is still trying to get their pitches except for Disney. So the big British winner was Olivia Colman for Best Actress in The Favourite and of course her speech was the one that everyone remembers. It's nice to see Olivia Colman win because uh, I don't know how much uh, viewers outside of the UK really appreciate this. She definitely came from a much smaller background of working in television and working in comedy. Of course she had uh, small appearances in films like Hot Fuzz or working very much on things like Peep Show or that Mitchell and Webb look so it's mind-boggling to see just how much her stature has risen over the last few years. I mean even a few years ago she was essentially a glorified extra in Murder on the Orient Express and now she's a star in her own right. She's got an award to her name and for some reason in a lot of circles this was considered to be a surprise and to my mind it wasn't. I always thought that, that award was really hers but a lot of people thought it was going to be Glenn Close's year and I think that's because it's Glenn Close's seventh nomination and she still hasn't won and everyone thought the Otters are going to do that thing where they'll give it to someone who really deserves it maybe not necessarily for this one but they do deserve it in some capacity so we'll give it to them because The Wife as a movie I didn't see that and it didn't seem like it had an especially big impact but everyone was talking about Close's performance obviously in relation to it but I don't think that was a movie that was on many people's radars. When uh, Olivia Colman, when she won the um, the BAFTA, they were talking about it on the radio. So I knew that she was a person, and then when she's up for that, well, I mean, obviously, but... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I just <laughs> I guess, that's the way it came out. But no, I had to ask my wife, because I'm a dirty American, and she's like, oh, she was in this, and she was also in that, and she was in the show you've never heard of. And finally, she's like, how do I quantify somebody who was just kind of famous, but not really in British TV, who's now won an Oscar? And I was like, I don't know, but I'm looking at her wiki 
right now. So I wonder if literally the, the Academy went, well, she's British. She must be like, you know, Shakespeare-y stuff. <laughs> she's been to Hogwarts. She is very much the definition of a character actor, and she does so well at that. And you can see that in The Favourite. If you've never seen her work before, you can see both sides of her. She works fantastically as a comedic performer and as a dramatic performer. And in her role as Queen Anne, she definitely has elements of both because of the tragedy of that character in a lot of ways in that she suffers from gout, she's quite scared and quite vulnerable in a lot of ways, but she's also very susceptible to being controlled. The movie is essentially a power play between Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz's characters trying to essentially manipulate her. But also, there are some really funny scenes in that film. I mean, everyone has seen the clip of Coleman barking, How dare you! Close your eyes! When you're watching that movie, a lot of the film is actually Stone and Weiss. They do have quite showy parts, especially Emma Stone. Emma Stone's character has a very big transformation all throughout that film. Even so, in the very final moments of that movie, I think it's Coleman that eventually makes the biggest mark, and I think that's a lot of why she won in that category. I don't think anyone else was really coming close, even Glenn Close, ironically enough. Uh, I mean, you look at the others, and maybe Lady Gaga? Maybe? Uh, I I liked Melissa McCarthy's performance in Can You Ever Forgive Me? And I thought that was a fine film, but it was, again, the archetypal example of an awards-friendly, actors-heavy film. And to that end, we should also mention the other Brit that was very much publicised here, Richard E. Grant. He was nominated, and he really seemed to enjoy it and embrace it, even though he knew that he probably wasn't going to win for it. But I still wanted him to win, to be honest, just because he seemed to be in such an enthusiastic sport about it. I like Richard E. Grant, mostly just because he played Doctor Who one time. Yeah, I love that. That, that, That's basically all I remember him from, to be perfectly honest, sometimes. Oh, I'm sorry. My wife is vehemently shaking her head and holding up to you. He's played Doctor Who twice. (laughs) (laughs) Forgive me for my lapse. I like your wife. (laughs) Dan, did you have any thoughts on any of the other nominees? I guess the one thing that I haven't mentioned so far is, is I guess my personal, like, antipathy because my, like, personal favorite for several categories didn't even get nominated. And so it's like Annihilation didn't show up in sound editing, didn't show up in visual effects, didn't show up in sound mixing, didn't show up in editing, didn't show up in actress in a leading role. So because of that, I was just kind of like, why even care? Well, now that you mention that, I mean, of course, the reason that Annihilation wasn't nominated was largely internal industry politics, a lot of it. Yeah, it's a politics thing. So the Oscars is all politics, but the politics start long before you even get to the voting because it's like the pre-voting for nominations, which are driven largely by aggressive for your consideration campaigns. So a lot of times you'll see smaller, like, you know, mid-slate movies that don't get maybe the recognition that they deserve and that 100% comes down to the producers not submitting them at all. It's not a write-in like you need to actually like pay to even be on the list for consideration. Oh. Yeah. Yeah you need to be very actively campaigning. It's almost like running an election. Yes. I didn't know that. I thought it was just every movie ever. No. So if you don't pay that if somebody did hypothetically write you in on their ballot it wouldn't matter. 
they would just be discarded. You haven't actually applied to be considered. Now, I think they did because they did do a couple for your consideration things, but they didn't put them very hard. So I think they just kind of put in like the absolute bare minimum and then just kind of like left it. There was no push from the producers for Annihilation. And if there's no push, then it's just, you know, not going to happen. But so because of that, you know, Annihilation didn't get any nominations, even though there are several categories in there where like I think of what I saw last year, it was a very, very worthy contender, like particularly several of the technical categories. I guess my one other thought is a category that we haven't touched on at all, which was uh, Roma winning for cinematography. This is sort of the inverse of editing cinematography this year. You know, all like Cold War favorite, Never Look Away, Roma, A Star is Born, all gorgeous looking films. But Roma is a class above all of them. Like it is just amazing looking. Clear front runner, clear worthy winner in, in cinematography for that one. Well, you mentioned that you don't really have much reason to care. And I think that's interesting because that's an opinion that many people have expressed to me over Twitter in the run up to the Oscars is why care? Why give them the sense of importance? Because we love the drama of it. We love the narrative. Yes. We love going on podcasts the day after and arguing about the fact that our <laughs> favorites didn't get nominated. So we don't really care about the Oscars, even though we've just spent two hours talking about them. Yes. <laughs> that is the question is, what is the future of the Oscars? And are they still relevant in this day and age? There's a lot of people that feel very jaded about it, because I think we know a lot of essentially how it's made. We know that a lot of it is built off of movies that have been campaigned very heavily, if not necessarily because of their merits. And I think that people are very aware of this because of, dare I say it, Harvey Weinstein has had a huge association with the Oscars for best part of 15 years, and I think that he's very much changed how the Oscars works and operates with the way that he campaigned his movies, and because people are aware of that sort of thing and they're aware of Oscar-baity movies, as we discussed earlier, that has led a lot of people to feeling disenfranchised and feeling like the Oscars doesn't actually represent the movies that they go and see or watch. I think it's kind of like wrestling, but for other people. If you're really into wrestling, and I have a lot of friends on Twitter who are, like at specific times in GMD, like all my Twitter is just wrestling. But it's like that idea of Hollywood being the silver screen, the glamour that we associate with like the first days of Hollywood, which is kind of one of those things that you look back and like, oh yeah, back in the day and stuff. So even now that it's all over Twitter and social media, and we know how the voting goes and who's cheating and who's an asshole. I think for some people, it still does hold that kind of glamour that, oh, who's the best dressed? And oh, they really deserved to win. Oh, did they get it? So I think that will always kind of attract that, but I don't know if it's still relevant. I would argue the other direction, and I would say they have never been relevant Ooh. because they were founded as an attempt at breaking the craft unions or, well, preventing the craft unions from, like, forming and giving an air of legitimacy to union-busting efforts in Hollywood. So they've never actually been relevant beyond spectacle and farce. <laughs> and the only thing that we're noticing is that we're now keenly aware of the tastes of the voting body and particularly the fact 
fact that they are so easily manipulated and have been since Deer Hunter, and it's just that that manipulation has now risen to the top as the art of getting an Oscar, Mm. but I'm not paying for it, (laughs) so I just get to sit back and enjoy the absurd, obnoxious spectacle, and I get to push up my glasses onto the bridge of my nose and act like I'm so much smarter than all of those rubes <laughs> voting because clearly my favorites and it's it's circus. Mm. Professional wrestling really is a great comparison except professional wrestling like 90% of wrestlers know exactly what they're in. They know they're in a soap opera. I think the Oscars is in denial that they're a soap opera. Mm. Every now and then they get it. Some of the people involved understand that and clearly work the drama but there is a huge portion of the Oscars, the Academy as an institution that has convinced themselves they have bought their own hype. And that's kind of the problem. Now, I wouldn't say that there's a fix to that because if the Academy wasn't constantly huffing their own farts, if they did admit that they were just a party, whenever they do that, whenever the the Oscars tries to like get real, they just get like immeasurably worse. I'm trying to remember exactly how many years ago it was. I think it was 2014 was the year where they like they set up the stage so that it was actually like amphitheater style rather than a proscenium so all of the presentations were actually happening at like ground level rather than elevated it was supposed to be like close and intimate and it became so obvious this was just a bunch of people giving statues to their friends because that's <laughs> all it is they did it once and immediately were like no pomp ceremony otherwise it's too obviously a charade i mean when you talk about the production of the show itself this year's oscars the lead up to it has had all sorts of road bumps that's a mild way of putting it it was looking like it was going to be a disaster from outside of it because of course there was no shortage of controversies from the best popular film category that they set up and then retracted oh god the uh, fact that Kevin Hart was going to host and he lasted less time in that job than Eddie Murphy did there was also the fact that they were trying to shorten the telecast by only having two of the nominated songs perform instead of the whole five which they retracted again then they tried to push certain categories like editing and cinematography in to a post-show script that they performed in the ad breaks and they tack on it at the end of the telecast, which is what the BAFTAs actually does in their televised version. The BAFTAs is pre-recorded on television, which is really annoying for me as a viewer because I already know who's won. It pops up on Twitter instantly. There's no point in doing it that way, quite frankly. Just show the whole thing, especially because when they show the BAFTAs, it's always a rush job with the air team because they're constantly, you know, like, shit, it's happening while we're going on. Cut, cut, what happened at the end of this year's BAFTAs is that in the postscript of awarded earlier, two of them were actually in the proper show because they were that sloppy and that rushed in trying to get it to broadcast. So again, the Oscars retracted that. It seems like, ironically, despite the Oscars being hostless for the first time in 30 years, the last time it was done so was ironically... 
1989 when Driving Miss Daisy won, <laughs> it does actually seem to have worked out because lots of people have said, you know what, actually, this kind of works when you don't have a host. It turns out you don't really actually need a host because you already have a stage director. Yes. Don't get me wrong, I, I do like the host sometimes, but at the same time, this thing felt much snappier and flowed a lot better. It wasn't a total disaster. If they're going to have a host in the future, I still think one of the best ones was uh, when Hugh Jackman did it like about 10 years ago. It opened with a big musical number. I thought that was pretty great. Maybe the host just open middle and close it, basically. I, I don't know. Like, I feel like they're going too much to try and make the host a stand-up routine rather than necessarily be a host. And sometimes it's painful. I think that's the legacy of Billy Crystal. Yeah. yeah. I was just about to say, they should just get Billy Crystal back one last time and then never have a host again. Bring him out of retirement for one last mission. <laughs> Because, of course, Billy Crystal is kind of synonymous with the Oscars, and he's done so well at televising the cast, because he's very good at improvising jokes. I mean, I was actually astonished, because I was reading his autobiography, and he was talking about the year that he presented it when City Slickers was nominated and Jack Palance won, and apparently, on the night that he was hosting that, he had pneumonia, which is amazing. Oh, wow. Wow. Maybe they just get Jim Jeffries to host it next time. But yeah, I do think that uh, the Oscars telecast is a lot cleaner when it doesn't have a host, ironically enough, having this idea of having someone be like sort of comic and kind of sending up all the movies, it essentially adds up to a whole bunch of awkward, unfunny, extended sketches that just bloat out the telecast and suddenly, bam, they're mostly all gone. Yeah. Like, as we were saying earlier, the whole thing basically constantly feels like actors loving themselves and Hollywood loving itself a little bit too much at times. And one of the biggest problems, and that this is a, a whole thing about the Oscars, they can make it a lot better because for the longest time, it has not been a celebration of movies and moviegoers. It's been a celebration of the people who make the movies. And I think that's a problem if you're trying to get people to tune into it. I know it's not the greatest award show in the world, but there's the Game Awards every year, which is hosted by Jeff Keighley. <laughs> and they show trailers for all the new games. If you want to get people popularised, show a trailer for the next Avengers movie or something. Mm. Oh. Well, funnily enough, uh, Netflix had a trailer during the premiere during the Oscars. They had the Irishman teaser trailer with no real footage from the movie, but I did notice it was a kind of like a calculated screw you to the Academy. <laughs> At the end of that trailer, it says, coming soon to theatres and on Netflix. <laughs> 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 That's sort of like my point is I feel like they want to be entertaining, but they have their heads too far up their own ass. Well, that's the great thing about Netflix, isn't it? I mean, I've had Netflix since they post you two DVDs and then you'd post them back. You know, just the fact that, you know, you say, oh, the, the new Netflix documentary is out, the new movie is out, the new season's out. And I can just sit there in my underpants. I mean, obviously, I'd be wearing trousers and a shirt as well, but just marathon or do whatever. Whereas I want to go to the cinema, we have to go and get seats. And if you're sitting next to someone that smells or something like that, it really brought a lot to it. Whereas me, I just show up to the cinema in my underpants. They kicked me out. <laughs> I mean, ironically, the thing about the Oscars this year is that the whole reason that they were trying to mess around with the format is that, of course, they have ABC breathing down their neck and the Oscars have actually been declining in ratings for the last several years. Oh. But this show has defied that trend in that it's actually slightly up from last year. I think people tuned in to see what kind of clusterfuck it was going to be. That is true. It's potentially that. But it is actually uh, 29.6 million tuned in. ABC and one have been saying, like, oh, this, this, the, the numbers are going down. But 29.6 million people tuning in to a single broadcast? Name one other show that has that. <laughs> Besides the Super Bowl. 
to the court. Yeah, but like a lot of the people working, like you got to keep in mind, it is literally the same people who were doing this back in the 90s, where 29 million for a big thing wouldn't even get you fifth. Yeah, that's true. So to look at some previous ratings, just to give you some perspective on that, the highest rating that I can see on here is 2001 when Gladiator won, where 42.9 million people watched it and Steve Martin hosted it. The closest that we've come to that in recent years, uh, 40.3 million people watched Argo win when Seth MacFarlane hosted in 2013, and I'm suddenly getting back all those repressed memories. <sighs> we saw your tits. We saw your tits. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. And he said boobs, didn't he? He said boobs on air. Yeah, that opening number wouldn't work in a post-Me Too age, would it? <laughs> Just to think that was a few years ago. Wow. It didn't work in a pre-Me Too age. Wow, that was indeed... It did indeed happen. <laughs> Nothing specifically against Seth MacFarlane, because I actually have a lot of admiration for the guy, but that was dumb as fuck. Well, now here's the thing. is So, like, I think I'm actually going... Here's, here's a lukewarm defense of the underlying concept of the joke that could maybe be worked into something, which is a joke that is poking fun at the Academy and how it rewards actresses in specific for doing topless scenes in dramatic contexts. Yeah, uh, agreed. Not that I'm not a lover of boobs or anything. I, I like boobs just as much as, well, everybody. That does tend to be a thing. It's like, yeah. hey, boobs in dramatic context? Let's give you an Oscar. Yeah, so there was an underlying concept there, but then it wound up just being a three-minute musical number of We Saw Your Boobs. Okay, the biggest this decade uh, Oscar telecast is 43.7 million watched 12 years a slave win when Ellen DeGeneres hosted. Oh, I do like that. I saw that one. I remember that one. But who doesn't really? I think a lot of that is an Ellen bump. Mm -hmm. And the Twitter bump, I think, actually. Yes, because that was the year when they broke the internet, wasn't it? And they... the, the selfie. Yes. Thing also, I think that social media has taken a bit of that viewership away because how many people would watch just to see the red carpet, who's dressed like the best dress, the worst dress? Because time was before instant social media when there's Snapchat, you can you discuss it right there on Instagram. You'd have to wait until your favorite weekly magazine came out in a few days to like page through it if you weren't watching it. Well, the thing is, I discovered it watching morning television in the UK, watching the Oscars roundtable from hell on Good Morning Britain. How about this for a lineup? Piers Morgan. Oh, Jesus. Uh, that, that's all you have to say. Perez Hilton, Mel B, and Vinnie Jones. Mel, what are you doing? Run away, Mel, run away. <laughs> With special appearances by Elliot Gould, Tatum O'Neill, yeah. Vinnie Jones? Yes. D don't get me wrong, I, I have a lot of bizarre respect for a man who went from, like, having the most ridiculous football career to having the most ridiculous acting career. But, like, why was he there? Hello, roll call anyone in LA picking up our calls to be on this Oscars telecast at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Anyone? Anyone? No? Bueller. Bueller. Did Piers Morgan open his mouth and, like, locusts fell out or something? Like, that's what I prefer. Well, Piers Morgan said that he really liked Green Book, if memory serves, so, you know. He would. That is the most unsurprising <laughs> yeah. thing ever. On brand. Anyway, on that note, I think it's time to wrap things up. So, where can people find you, Dan? Uh, they can find me on Twitter, at FoldableHuman, or YouTube, uh, Folding Ideas. Where can people find you, Omega? 
about you? You can find me on Twitter, uh, the Omega Geek. On I am also I have a small YouTube show called Psych Media. We talk about psychology. And where can people find you, Petros? They can find me on Twitter at Petros of Sparta. They can find me on my website, LeonFilms.net, and on YouTube at YouTube.com/slash LeonUnity. We've got a whole bunch of actually film-based, not tutorials and not video essays, but kind of a bit of both in between coming out soon. Which the first one is coming out uh, later this week, called How to Structure Your Screenplay. If you're somehow listening to this on various other platforms that aren't my YouTube, you can find me on FilmBrain. You can find me on Twitter fb underscore bmb. I'm on Tumblr at filmbrainbmb, Facebook filmbrain reviews, and also this podcast is now available on many of your favourite platforms, be it Stitcher, iTunes, and various others. So go have a look for it and subscribe to it if you haven't already. Until next time, I'm Matthew Burke. Fading out. Thank you for listening to the Film Brain Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that if you want to support my work, be it podcasts or YouTube videos, please go to my Patreon at patreon.com slash filmbrain where you can experience those episodes early among other perks. And just a quick shout out to my Patreons, Tim Poppleton, SoFox, Inigo Almandoz, Tim Tark, G Viral, Robert Murray, Henry Jacob, Manuel Jonan, Lassie Voigt, Marley Berrickmans, Joshua Bowden. And remember, if you have any feedback about the show over social media please use the hashtag filmbrainpodcast oh and here's a funny little outtake for you my connection suddenly dropped midway through the recording of this podcast and my software managed to capture my guests rather perplexed reactions hello did we just lose we did uh it looks like he froze (laughs) it looks like matt exploded oh no oh and he dropped uh we're, we're, we're sure he's not like you know that he didn't like <laughs> like Oscar rage himself into spontaneous combustion or something. <laughs>